Praise God. You may be seated. This is uh, going to be a little different tonight. <laughs> it's been a while since I taught or preached something that has had more of a reaction of, wow, I don't know if I've ever heard anything like that before. Uh, some of you didn't hear the last part of the message trying to figure out the first part. So, I, you know, uh, you're here and I'm glad you're here. There's a lot of folks not here. And rather than trying to get into something heavy, uh, challenging or vision-wise or faith-wise or commitment-wise, I just felt like tonight, I don't know about next Thursday night, but about thought tonight we'd do one of those question-answer periods. And that's really kind of a, it's a misnomer. You ask a question and I go until I'm done and then we'll see if there's any time left for that. Uh, so we, I call it question and answer and those of you that's been around a while know that I have a very, very, very bad habit of giving long answers to short questions. And so I'm starting a little early tonight. Uh, hopefully there is some time. Uh, I didn't realize it had been so long since I talked about any of this and uh, would like to uh, clarify some things for you. Now, the problem is going to be I'm going to read the scriptures from Sunday night just for those that weren't here, and I'll do my best to not begin to comment before there's a question. <laughs> so we'll see. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 1. And I saw an angel come down from heaven having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till... The thousand years should be fulfilled, and after that he must be loosed a little season. And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads, are in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again till the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such, the second death hath no power. The second death is the final disposition of the lost to outer darkness, bottomless pit, lake of fire. All three of those are uh, descriptive terms of the same place. The Greek word for hell, what we normally call hell is Hades. And the Greek word for that final disposition of the souls of the unrighteous dead uh, is uh, Gehana. G-E-H-E-N-N-A. Uh, so 
These are not the same place. They're not in the same location. They're not, a diff- they're not the same purpose. The difference would be like this. Hades is similar to the county detention center. If you commit a crime and you're arrested and uh, you are held in the detention center until you go to court. And then after court, if you're found guilty and sentenced, then you go to uh, either the state penitentiary or the federal penitentiary where you will serve out your sentence. Hades is like the county detention center. Gehana is like the penitentiary. Now, in some very minor cases where the, the, the uh, crime is not as severe, etc., uh, there are people who serve out their time in the detention center. Uh, according to one very large part of Christendom, uh, that would be likened unto uh, purgatory, where you pay for your crimes or your sins and then you're let out to be saved. There is no possible way, biblically, you can defend a doctrine of purgatory. The Bible says, as a tree falleth, so shall it lie. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. So there is no second chance, so to speak. There is no second chance. Whatever condition you're in spiritually when you die is the condition of your soul for eternity, either righteous or unrighteous. Now, verse 6 lets us know that there is a third condition. And that is holy. And the holy are in a different category for eternity than the righteous. And uh, here, I, here I am. You haven't asked a question yet. But it's, it's not the same. And I don't, I wanted to ask, answer questions, but we'll see. <laughs> uh, verse 7 says, and, and notice again, verse 6, Blessed and holy is he that hath part the first resurrection, on such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. Uh, oh, there was another place. Yeah, I'll read that. Okay. Verse 7. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison, which is Hades. The bottomless, not the bottomless pit. What? Did he, what yeah, it's called the bottomless pit. Uh and he shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, together, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. 
And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city. Uh, the beloved city here is the earthly Jerusalem. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast, uh, who's also called in other places the Antichrist, and the false prophet are. These two are humans. The beast or the Antichrist and the false prophet are humans that we read about in the earlier verses of uh, earlier chapters of the book of Revelation. And they were the two most directly involved humans with the Antichrist and his attempt to set up a one world government. There is a biblical principle that God has allowed and Satan has stupidly followed for thousands of years. God always allows the devil to attempt to set up the false before God brings the truth. Always. And so the seven year period will contain uh, the adversary's effort to, to forestall or prevent the millennial reign of Christ by the Antichrist fulfilling the, the role of Christ in the millennial reign by the Antichrist setting up a one world government during that period of time and ruling the world as the savior of the world, the false savior of the world. And uh, this is Antichrist or the beast. And these two humans are the first two humans cast into Gehana. And they are cast into Gehana at, uh, at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. All other humans will await the great white throne judgment, which I'll read about in a moment. So, uh, the number of these deceived humans who come against the Lord... And his followers uh, are as the sand of the sea. Verse 9, And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the saints of the, the camp of the saints about and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that was deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and false prophet are. And shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Verse 11. And I saw a great white throne. And him that sat on it. From whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead small and great stand before God. And the books were opened. And another book. Now notice that. And the books were opened. Books plural. And another book. Uh, most people that I have read after, including my own opinion, opinion, the books are the 66 books of the Bible. See, the Bible uh, is comprised of books. Not chapters. Books. 66 books that we have, uh, over the years, uh, there has been 
significant agreement that these six books, six six books are divinely inspired. And uh, it is the word of God or what is contained in these books that is going to be the rule of judgment, the rule of law of judgment that will determine people's eternal destination. And the books were open and another book, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books, plural, according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. The, the, the f- final ultimate punishment of all of the lost is called the second death. But death in this context does not mean cessation of existence. It means uh, to be completely cut off from any knowledge or fellowship with God. God is life. When you're completely and forever cut off from God, that's death. That's why the Bible calls us dead in sins. In trespasses and sins. Before we were saved, we were dead in sins. Because our sins and our iniquities separated us from God. Isaiah says. But in this life there's hope. Even though we are living dead in sin, his life comes and saves us. But in the second death, there will never again be another chance. That is permanent. Forever and ever and ever and ever. No second chance. So again, verse 13 it says... uh, or verse 12 says that they were judged out of those things which are written in the books. And verse 15 says, And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now the question that many of us have is, uh, will we face that? No, we will not. Why? Because the church is going to go through the first judgment that will ever be done. I am one of those rare individuals that I believe I can prove biblically that at the rapture of the church, every person that's ever been baptized in Jesus' name and or received the Holy Ghost, uh, regardless of whether you live for God, you will be raptured. No backslider from the church will be given a second chance in the seven years of tribulation. I believe that with everything in me. Why do I believe that? Because if I read in Matthew 25 and other places along that line that the judgment of the man on the, with the talents, five talents, two talents, one talent... The same judgment where a man that I said, I listened to just a small part of 
Sunday night's message, and I said, the guy with two gallons contained two more. God made him ruler over ten cities. Your mind gets ahead of yourself, and it doesn't come out right. The guy with five talents gave five more, and the Lord said, I'm going to make you ruler over ten cities because you're a good and faithful servant. The guy with two gained two more said, I'm going to make you ruler over four cities. Uh, thou good and faithful servant. The guy with one talent says, I was afraid of you and how hard you are. So I hid my talent. And the Lord said, bind him hand and foot and cast him in the outer darkness. So in the same judgment where the, the guy with five and the guy with two got their reward, that the guy with one talent was cast into outer darkness from that judgment. And the people who, who treated the Lord properly when they treated the, the poor and the sick and the halt and the lame and the blind and the prisoner and, and the, the naked and the stranger and were granted life from that point, those who did not treat them properly were, were cast into hell from that point. Then you've got the parable of the, uh, the marriage supper. Where the king came in to see the guests and there was a man there without a wedding garment on. He said, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And the man was speechless. And from the wedding supper, the man was bound and cast into outer darkness. And all of these are, are, are all facets of the judgment the church is going to face at the rapture. <laughs> you see, that's the deal. You could get baptized and filled with the Holy Ghost and decide you don't believe this anymore and walk away, but the birth certificate says you're, you're a child of God. You're not a sinner anymore. And you're not going to be judged with sinners you're not going to be judged for righteousness. You're going to be judged for holiness. And the Bible says, without holiness, no man shall see God. So consequently, this is a, there is a complete difference between the church and everybody else. Why? <laughs> There's a lot of ladies in this room. And if you're my sister in the Lord, I love you. But there's only one woman in this room I'm going home with. And she's my wife. We're sisters in the Lord. I love you as a brother. Hopefully you love me. But I'm only married to one. And my relationship with the one I'm married to is different than my relationship with everybody else. And it's exactly the same way with God because he's the one that designed all this. And when the book says to whom much is given, much is required... No humans in the history of God's plan has been offered more than the church. 
So because much is offered us, we're also all, by the baptism of the Holy Ghost, according to 1 Peter, I think it's 1 Peter, uh, maybe 2 Peter, uh, we are all partaker, partakers of the divine nature. No one before or after the church is a partaker of the divine nature. The Bible says we are the temples of the Holy Ghost individually. And we are the habitation of God through the Spirit collectively. No people in the history of man have been offered that. Before or after. And according to 2 Thessalonians and other places also, 1 Corinthians 15, when we die or are raptured, either one, and resurrected from death or raptured, and uh, one of the, my favorite places to read in funerals, especially at the graveside, is uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, I think it is, that we should not be ignorant, that we should not sorrow as others which have no hope. Because we that are alive and remain won't prevent them that are asleep or dead. Uh, They're going to be resurrected and we're going to meet them. Those of us who are alive are going to be raptured from life. They're going to be resurrected and raptured from death. And we will meet them that that those are dead at that moment. Those uh, that were dead at that moment. And those of us alive at that moment are going to be joined together with him in the clouds. That's not a very long trip, is it? In a moment, a twinkling of an eye. And the reason is because we're going to be given bodies just like his. He could eat. He could drink. But he did not have flesh and blood. He had flesh and bone. And with that body, he could be here one second and over here he could be a different place another second. He could appear to walk through walls. Why? Because he had a body that was in tune with both worlds, the natural and the spiritual, simultaneously. The regular flesh cannot do that. It was asked me earlier this evening, uh, if we're going to live on on the earth for a thousand years ruling and reigning, can we be lost? No. Because if you're raptured, either resurrected from death and raptured or quickened from your uh, living one moment you're here breathing and the next moment you're going in the air. Uh, whichever way that is, at that moment, you will be changed instantaneously. By the time we meet him in the air, we will have a different body. It will look like you do now. You will be recognizable as you. But it will not be a body of flesh and blood. Because the life of the flesh is in the blood. And the life of the spiritual body, of the glorified body, is the spirit. Blood decays. Flesh decays. But a body whose life is directly from the spirit rather than blood cannot decay. It is an eternal body. Can't be sick, can't fail, can't sin. Cannot. 
That's what I was preaching about Sunday night. Is that it, during that thousand years when we're ruling and reigning with Christ on the earth, the church, in our glorified bodies, we're going to be the preachers and we're going to be the government, kings and priests, ruling and reigning in the earth with Christ as God on the, uh, um, God manifested the flesh in his glorified body, ruling the world from the city of Jerusalem literally. Now, I know for some of you, this stuff is far out there. Brother Wright, how can you believe all this stuff? i tell you how. The same one that wrote this stuff wrote all that stuff that's already come to pass. Okay? So I've got two perspectives I've got personal experience of what God has done for me personally from his book. And I've learned to trust the book because of what's happened to me personally. So I know the book is true in how it applies to me personally. And I look at the past and I see that everything God said in the past, he has done and done exactly like he said. So from history and personal experience, I then can conclude that what he said is coming is going to happen. Like he said it. Can my mind comprehend it? Well, to a very limited degree. It's like trying to explain, excuse me for saying this, I'll be as discreet as I can. What it's like, what it's like to try to describe to a virgin bride what her wedding night's going to be like. Impossible. You can give her all the biology lesson you want. There's no way she can conceive of it. Or explaining to a lady who is married that has just found out she's pregnant what her life is about to be like for the next uh, seven to eight months and then what she's going to go through. Read all you want to read. Listen to all the personal testimony somebody else has. But let me tell you something, friend. (laughs) Having lived with a lady that's been pregnant three times, there is no way in this world that prior knowledge even remotely comes close to actual experience. That's why after our, our first son that lived uh, was born, his eldest brother did not survive five and a half, six months, whatever it was, uh, because of miscarriage. Uh, but ab- after watching his mother go through all of what he, she went through to birth him, I have made the statement many, many times. I can understand a woman having one child. She didn't know. But how in the world, how in the world a woman could be willing and even want to have the second one? You know, (laughs) I forget the name of the drug. What's What's that stuff they give you so you don't remember surgery and all that stuff? Yeah, okay. Yeah, they gave that stuff to me, okay? 
And I'm laying on the table. And they have a problem ventilating me, right? That stuff is already supposed to be in my body. But I remember the anesthesiologist going, oops. Because he stuck the tube in and hit the back of my throat. Had to pull it out, put it in. He had to do that about three or four times. I remember. The other thing I remember that I wasn't supposed to be remember was the very first time I had surgery. And when they pulled the tube out in the recovery room, my esophagus spasmed. And I couldn't breathe. And they had to force the tube back down in my throat and then convince me to calm down because I could breathe again. I wasn't supposed to be able to remember any of that. I've been having some dental work done, and uh, I've been going to this dentist. He puts you to sleep. It, oh, the dental it, dental work is wonderful when you go to sleep before they do anything, you, before they even do the shots in your mouth, and you wake up and it's all over with. Well, this last time, a couple of weeks ago, they told me, I thought they were putting me under But what they told me was they were giving me this stuff so I wouldn't remember. And I'm thinking, oh God, this is not good because that stuff doesn't really work too well on me. And I, and of course he told me, he said, we talked to you during, during all this time when you're under anesthesia and you, and you respond and all that, but you just don't remember it. Really? Well, they must have done something a little different this last time because they were taking molds and impressions of my teeth so that they could create the crown. And the girl couldn't get it out. I had my jaw stretched and she's up in there pulling. I thought she was going to pull every tooth in my head out. But I wasn't supposed to remember Now, the Lord must have some powerful stuff for a woman that's been through one birth to forget about all that sorrow and want to have another child. And here sits my beloved back here holding a baby. Ever since I married at 17... You can almost always find a baby in her arms. I never could understand it. How in the world she wanted to have more than one child. I couldn't understand it. But there was this big hole opened up after David was born. She wanted another baby and it took forever. It just seemed like forever. Of course she got what she wanted. First time with him, she didn't even have to wear any maternity clothes till she was eight months. That's the truth. I got pictures. With Joel, she was wearing maternity clothes after three weeks, I think. <laughs> I'm thinking, boy, this one's different. This time's different. That's got to be really, really uncomfortable. It's, you can't explain. 
I, you know, I, I'm not one of those people. If, if heaven is a cloud and wings and a halo, whether it's got a little thing in the back holding it up or just floating there and a harp forever, in my opinion, I went to the wrong place. I know clouds and, and, and fire is not the same thing. But there is no way I want to do that forever and ever and ever. There's no way. I'm not willing. I'm not willing. You know, just let me cease to be. It would be better than a cloud and a harp and a halo. If there's such a thing. And I don't find one of them in the Bible. But seems to be such a popular myth. So the point is. I know most of us are here with the desire not for our hide, not see our hide burn forever and ever. Amen. But what are you looking for? What are you looking for? I didn't choose for me to be born in this time. You didn't either. I mean, you look back on Adam and Eve, they had a pretty easy from our perspective, not so easy from theirs, apparently. The only commandment was not eat of the tree. Do anything they want to do. Did you understand? They didn't even have to till the ground. There were no weeds. Stuff grew of its own accord. That was part of the curse, you see. Man now had to earn his bread by the sweat of his brow. That meant before the curse, he didn't. And he fellowshiped with God every day in the cool of the garden. He knew everything that man could know about God at that time. And it wasn't enough. That wasn't enough. Now, I realize there's some even sitting here that don't believe in dispensations, and that's fine. I never made an issue out of all that. But I got the microphone, and this is what's being taught here. While I don't know that I could take you to the book and show you, it says, okay, this dispensation is number three, and it's named such and such. Uh, study easily demonstrates that there are seven periods of time in which the plan of salvation was different from man on the earth. Call it, I don't care what you call it, dispensation, call it something else. The bottom line is, the people after the garden couldn't be saved by the plan of salvation in the garden. The people after the flood couldn't be saved by the plan of salvation before the flood. The people after the law was given couldn't be saved like, saved like the people before the law was given. The people after the day of Pentecost weren't saved like the people. Didn't have the same plan of salvation as the people before the day of Pentecost. So in a very, I start to say casual, but not casual, a, a, a reasonably committed search of the scripture... 
You can identify periods in which the plan of salvation changed. And the, and the more challenging, if you want to call it that, for the flesh, plan of salvation is the greater the blessing of God was for fulfilling that. For instance, in the, under the law, the Lord said 10%, the first 10% of everything you, you receive is mine. It's all mine. It's not yours, it's mine. You don't give tithe, you pay tithe. You don't do any giving until after tithe is paid. That's book. Well, I'm giving. What do you, what do you do? I'm pay, I'm giving my tithes. No. No, you can't give what's not yours to give. It's not yours. That's Old Testament, you see. In the Old Testament, the first 10% is God's. He says it's mine. And then of the 90% that's left, then you are, you choose what portion of that that you're going to give. So he said tithes and offerings. In the New Testament, nah. In the Old Testament, you pay your tithes, everything else is yours, and then you can give what's yours. In the New Testament, I can't really give because I don't have anything to give because I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price. Why do you teach tithe, Brother Wright? The same reason Moses allowed divorce, because of people's, the hardness of people's heart. Because if I was really teaching New Testament finances, the only way you could teach it is everything you got belongs to God. The question is not how much you're giving, it's how much he's going to let you keep this week. Why don't you teach that? Well, because I don't like to hear the echo of my voice in an empty room. Excuse the expression, but we ain't that committed yet. Or I could put it in other ways, maybe not quite so uh, kind in some people's definition of kindness. We're not quite that saved yet. I'm not trying to be unkind, just I'm telling you what the book says. Well, the bottom line is this, though, see. (laughs) The Bible says the church is the bride of Christ. If Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the God of all gods, who's his wife? What do you normally call a king's wife? And he said... To whom much is given, much is required. And you see the whole context here of the uh, uh, of church, what church is. Church tells me again, it's Old Testament concept. You know, I, I've got this many number of services scheduled in my church in the church's calendar, and so if I get that done, the rest of the time is mine. It's just like our money. Which is a lie. I'm not my own. 
if I'm not my own, then my the money that I have isn't mine. The resources I have is not, the time I have is not mine. But we're not there yet either, are we? But we're going to get there. You may not realize it, but we are going to get there. We're going to get there because the Lord is going to allow things to get bad enough that the options are you get there or you completely abandon this and join up with the world. But again, (laughs) the problem is when the rapture takes place, you're not going to be left here so you can choose to be beheaded once you realize you missed the rapture. When the rapture takes place, you're saved or lost, but you're going if you've ever been baptized in Jesus' name filled with the Holy Ghost. There are, there are people, in the, people in this room, young men in this room, that I've had a, a father relationship with. Not just pastor, not just bishop, but father relationship. There are men out there that look at me more as a father than they do a minister. But the bottom line is this. I'm only father to two. Now, I can be a spiritual father. Paul said you have many instructors in Christ. You have not many fathers. So from that context, I guess I could be that. But the, but the point again is, <laughs> there's coming a day. And it's a whole lot sooner than it is later. You see, <laughs> I'm off on another subject here. Aren't you glad you got your questions answered earlier today? Because yours are the only questions that have been considered today. Looks like. <laughs> when I was 25 and 30 and preached this, I was branded as some kind of weirdo that I would... And the opinion was, hopefully I would grow out of it. And now I'm less than two months shy of being 71. And uh, I haven't outgrown it yet. And I won't get past it till the rapture. Whether I'm alive or dead when the rapture takes place. First spiritual experience I ever had was a dream. I was five years old. My dad was away in the Korean War, and I've got a brother two and a half years younger than me, and my mother let us sleep in the bed with her. And I had, brother, your bottle of water spill there, or somebody says. Uh, That's indoor, outdoor carpet. It won't hurt. It's fine. Uh, And I had a dream. And the church that we were going to, uh, 
uh, it was the front of the church was on the sidewalk. The sidewalk was about eight feet wide, and there was a street, maybe ten feet wide. So the front of the church building, you walked out of the front of the church, you were on the sidewalk, and ten feet away was the street. And in this dream at five years old, I was on the sidewalk, and I saw this, and the rapture took place. And I wasn't in the dream. I wasn't a part of the dream. I was an observer of the dream. And there were people in that church that went up in the rapture. And there were other people in that church that was, stayed on the sidewalk. And it was such a vivid dream, I woke my mother up. And I told her what I had just dreamed. And I named the people that stayed and I named the people that left in the rapture. And now all these years later, while I'm not anybody's judge, from the perspective of the book, it appears as though that dream was 100% accurate from what knowledge I have of the condition those people died in. That was 66 years ago. The second spiritual experience I ever had was during that same period of time. And uh, the church we were going to had old wooden theater style seats in it. And my brother being younger, was he had the quilt palette. If you don't know what a palette is, boy, you are young. Or you're, you're way young. But... She would, my mother would bring a couple of quilts to church and, or a quilt to church. She'd fold it up, lay it on the floor. My brother being the baby, he got to lay on the floor on the pallet. Me, I had to curl myself around in that seat. And one arm of the one seat would hit me in the back of the legs and I would, my back would be up against the back of the seat and I'd curl around that other arm and my head would lay in my mother's lap and I had to try to sleep like that. Church is going on. And I'm laying there asleep and something wakes me up. And I sat up and there was this lady preacher and she had, uh, she had a cast on her left hand that covered her, her from about her, her knuckles all the way up to almost her elbow. Apparently her wrist was broken or whatever. And she had the microphone in her right hand and she was walking back and forth across that stage and she was saying, Jesus is coming. And there was something moving in that place. Let me tell you something. That's the first time I'd ever really was aware I felt the presence of God. And she was saying, Jesus is coming. And I'm five years old. And I... <laughs> I knew my dad wasn't saved. And I prayed for my dad. And I needed to just pray... I wept, and I wept so hard that my the mucus ran out of my nose, and that's the the PC way of saying snot. And so, it, I just I soaked my mother's skirt with my tears and nasal discharge. <laughs> and I remember thinking, I remember thinking. I ruined my mother's skirt. And then my second thought was, but it doesn't make any difference because Jesus is coming. At that moment, I never expected to see my dad again. I just wanted him to be saved. 
And from that point until I received the Holy Ghost at age 12, whenever something bad happened or whenever I did something that was bad, whatever bad was, and when you're raised in the church, everything's bad. I would pray. And I would pray until I saw the vision. And I saw the same vision every time. I would see myself rising up off the earth. And when I did, great peace would come on me. And I knew I was okay. Once I received the Holy Ghost, I never had that vision again. I didn't need to have it again. So you see, the Lord has dealt with me about this subject ever since I was little. This is not theology to me. This is real life. This is what I've lived my whole life for. So, since I haven't taught on this in a while, this is from my perspective, and I believe I can prove this scripturally. Others have a different doctrine, and they believe they can prove it scripturally. So be it. But again, I got the microphone. And this is the doctrine of this church. And if you have a different doctrine, you're welcome to have it as long as you don't create discord with it here. I believe that the next thing that's to happen according to biblical prophecy is God fulfill the oath he made to Abraham. Where he promised by oath that God would pour the blessing of Abraham upon every Gentile, out upon the Gentiles. He said... Genesis 12, every family of the earth shall be blessed with the blessing of Abraham. Genesis 22, he said every nation on earth would be blessed with the blessing of Abraham. Abraham, When he confirmed this promise to uh, Isaac, he said every nation on earth would be blessed with the blessing of Abraham. When he confirmed it to Jacob, he said every family on earth would be blessed with the blessing of Abraham. And Galatians 3 says the blessing of Abraham is the Gentiles receiving the promise of the Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ. The outpour of the Holy Ghost. And it specifically says Gentiles. And the seven year period that we call the Great Tribulation is a misnomer. And that's just a nice way of saying it's misnamed. It's not biblically named. There's no place in the Bible that calls that entire seven year period the Great Tribulation. That terminology is used of the last three and a half years of that seven year period. Biblically... The two names that are most biblically used to connect or, or to identify that seven-year period is, first of all, the time of Jacob's trouble. And the, seventh, the second one is what's called Daniel's 70th week. We did, a, we did the 21 days. As a part of Daniel's 21 days of repentance and prayer and fasting, the angel of the Lord came to him and showed him that there were going to be 70 weeks of years that would occur on in the lives of Daniel's people, the Jews. Seventy weeks of years for God to finish his work in reaching Israel. That's 490 years. And he said, at the end of the 69th week, the Messiah would be cut off. There would be some kind of parenthetical time frame 
And, and then the 70th week or the 70th week of seven years, each day representing a year, that 70th week, God would turn after this parenthetical pause that the, 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 Daniel wasn't told how long it was going to be, that God would turn back to the Jews. So uh, the, the cutting off or the ending of the 69th week was, the, was Messiah the Prince being cut off, crucified. And then Daniel's 70th week. And the angel told Daniel that seven-year period had to do with God dealing with Daniel's people, the Jews. And that's exactly what's going to happen. The scripture talks about a period of time when the time of the Gentiles would be fulfilled. If the blessing of Abraham is God pouring the spirit of the, the, the blessing of Abraham is God pouring the spirit of God out on the Gentiles, when God is through and given every Gentile the opportunity, chance he, he, he can, Jews can receive the Holy Ghost in that period of time because God will give it to them just as much as Gentiles. But he, he is not dealing with the nation of Israel as a nation. Or as a people during this church age. So when, when God is through with fulfilling the promise of Abraham. That he swore with an oath he was going to do. Against his own deity. Now you can play church if you want to. You'd be satisfied coming to church having really great church services. And really great programs if you want to. If that's okay with you, if you're accept, if that's acceptable to you, that's your problem. But that's not what we're doing here. We're here to be a part of God's fulfillment of His promises and His oath to Abraham and Abraham's seed. And according to Galatians 3 and Romans 4, we are Abraham's seed by faith. For as many as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ and we are Abraham's seed by faith because we are in Christ and Christ is the seed of Abraham. So. So. When the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. <laughs> Now I know, I know there are people that don't agree with this. So be that, that's between you and God. But from all of my study on the Greek words used in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that talks about the Antichrist not being revealed until he that led it is taken out of the way. Uh, in fact, I'll read that if you'll, if you'll go with me please to 2 Thessalonians chapter uh, 2. I'm going to read this. Uh, verse, I'm going to read from verse 1. I'll just read a little bit so you can see this. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering unto him. Notice two different things. The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering unto him. That's not the same event. They're seven years apart. 
That ye be not soon shaken in mind and be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word, nor by letter as from us as the day of, the, of, day of Christ's hand. Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come except there come a falling away first. That was what we call the dark ages. And that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition, who opposed and exalt himself above all that is called God and is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. And now you know that you know what withholdeth. Greek word withholdeth there is K-A-T-E-C-H-O, and it means to hold down. Hold fast, it means to hold back, detain, or retain. To restrain, hinder. Now, you know that what withholdeth, that he might be revealed in his time. Something is holding back the revelation of the Antichrist. Next verse. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only... He who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. Now, the word letteth there is the Greek word K-A-T-E-C-H-O. The exact same word translated withholdeth in the previous word. Verse, which means to hold back, to detain, to restrain, to hinder. It's not the devil holding back the devil. It's not the devil restraining the devil. Somebody or something is holding the devil back from doing what he's wanted to do forever, and that is rule the world. And the Antichrist cannot be revealed till that which is restraining him is taken out of the way. <laughs> And the Greek word there means this. To become. To come into existence. To begin. To be. <laughs> In other words, it ceases to be. Because he's being held back by what is. By who is. Being taken out of the way. It's when the one who is present holding him back is no longer in existence in this, in this dimension. So I got a question. If you and I are made partakers of the divine nature by the spirit of God, and it is God's spirit holding all of this back, how can God's spirit be taken off the earth and you and I that have the spirit not be taken off the earth with it? Can't be. I'm sorry. Cannot be. Another, another question. Get your concordance out. Count the number of times the word church is used in Revelation chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. And then tell me <laughs> how many chapters you've got to, before, got to go before the word church is used again. What happens? I think 
the word church is used in Revelation 1, 2, and 3 about 21 times. And all of a sudden, it's not used on the earth again. For essentially the entire rest of the book of Revelation. What happens? Now, if you believe there are coincidences in this book, I don't know who your God is. Don't forget the word logos, which is translated word, is the root word for the word logic. The word of God is logical. It's not accidental. It's not coincidental. It's not, it's just some neat freak occurrence. That the word church is used in the book of Revelation chapters 1, 2, and 3 about 20 plus times. And it's not used again essentially in the rest of the book till the end. Where's the church? I don't believe it's on the earth. There's a catching away and then there's a second coming. And if you read chapter 19 of the book of Revelation, you'll find that when Jesus comes back and every eye sees him, you'll see that Jesus comes back with those who were in heaven with him for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, I'm going to throw this thought out here. This is kind of off the, uh, off the, <laughs> this is out there, okay? If that's the same as our culture, and the marriage supper of the Lamb is the wedding. That means all of us are illegitimate. Because our mama, the church, isn't married to the Father yet. And Galatians 4 says that we are Jerusalem, the mother, the new Jerusalem, the mother of us all. So if we are born again as children of God... And the marriage hasn't taken place yet. Then we're all Ill illegitimate children. So the marriage supper that's going to take place after the rapture can't be what we would call a marriage. Going back to their culture, it's a celebration of an accomplished fact. Hello? Some of y'all hadn't thought of that, had you? Now, either we're not children of God spiritually, either we're not sons of God, or if we are born again sons of God, and our mother's not already married to her husband, then we're illegitimate children. When did marriage take place? Uh, I think, and when the day of Pentecost was fully come. Because, hear this please. 1 Corinthians 6 says that you are the temple of God. And that it's wrong to join the temple of God with harlots. Now, I, don't, I think I can keep this discreet enough that those that are young enough to not know what a harlot is, and some of you will be asked when you get home, <laughs> probably, 
we have a pretty good idea what happens with a man that hires a harlot. And the Lord said, your bodies are the temple of the Holy Ghost and they shouldn't be joined to a harlot. I think it's four verses later he says, but he that is joined to the Lord is one spirit. Same Greek words translated by the same English word in that verse as four or five verses before when it says we're not supposed to be joined to a harlot. So what happened? The Lord's Spirit, who is our groom, the bride, comes into our spirit, which is the bride, the female, and we become one. Now, unless he believes in premarital sex, we must be married. Now, 48 years ago when I started preaching, if I would have said any of these words from the pulpit, people would be horrified. It's like... We're all virgins. None of us even know what you're talking about. That's horrible. It's like not using the word pregnant. <gasps> what was it? What did they used to call that? Um, uh, come, come on, what? No, no, it was even less. Uh, uh, in a family way, it was even. They, they used to even use less. Descriptive terms than that. What was it? What? Somebody help me here. What? No, no. I, I'm talking about even less direct than that. Uh, not not cloistered, but uh... anyway, anyway. The point being, and I think you got the point, and that is. The point that we're the bride of Christ already. We're not waiting for a marriage. The marriage supper celebrates a wedding that's already taken place. I hope so. Because the Lord's got a lot of illegitimate kids if, he, if there hadn't been a wedding. And let me tell you something. I don't mean this terribly, and I realize in our day and time there are more children who are Ill illegitimate than there's ever been before, in our culture at least. And I'm not talking about you naturally. God bless you. The Lord loves you. You're not one bit better or worse than the rest of us. But spiritually, the illegitimate child does not have an inheritance. It's only the child of the wife. It says it in the book. That gets an inheritance from the Lord. Well how can there be any children of a wife. If he doesn't even have a wife. And for those of you that don't believe in marriage and divorce. Because you are so sure the Bible teaches against it. Then you got a problem. Because Israel was his first wife and he divorced her. For adultery. The church is his second wife. 
Oh, yeah. He gave Israel a bill of divorcement. He divorced her because she was adulterous woman. Because she, she spiritually had committed adultery with the false gods of this world. While the book's pretty clear about the fact that you can't, if you're divorced on grounds other than adultery, you're not supposed to remarry. Well, God can forgive us, and we can too, but it's not, it's not good. It's not good. But if you're divorced on the grounds of adultery, and I don't mean legally, because that's very hard to prove anymore, but... There is proof that your spiritual oversight acknowledges uh, you have a right to remarry. You don't have to remarry, but you have a right to. So here we are. Okay? The Lord's made this promise. This is what's happening right now. I don't know how long that period is going to go. But I know this. I've looked at the word in the Hebrew for family. Every way I know to look at it. And something's going to happen that every single bloodline that has living members to it in the entire world is going to have somebody receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And every nation. Now when the Lord prophesied all this, you know, he did, poor, poor old God, he didn't know there was going to be over 200 something nations in our world today. Right? He couldn't have known that, right? And surely he didn't mean nation. Now, we use the word nation, but he didn't really mean that. Really? So the Vatican is a nation. Did you know that? And God's promise is going to be an outpouring of the Holy Ghost at the Vatican. They're the ones who call themselves a nation. The book said every nation. That's what the book says. No matter how small or large the nation is, every nation is going to have an outpouring of the Holy Ghost. Now, that is going to be such an amazing period of time. That the if the Lord doesn't take us out of here, we're not going to be saved. Not because it's going to be so bad, because it's going to be so good. And flesh is not going to be able to abide in that glory without being able, being tempted to take glory that doesn't belong to us. Put uh, Romans nine twenty eight on the screen, please. <laughs> For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness. Because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. I'm going to do this simply so I can give you the words. Uh, Romans 9, 28. Now, 
You see the word W-R-K? In both places where the word work is, it is not the normal Greek word for work, which is ergon, E-R-G-O-N, my southern American pronunciation of that Greek word, which I have no clue what it's really supposed to sound like. Ergon, E-R-G-O-N. The Greek word there is logos, not work, word. For he will finish the word and cut it short in righteousness because a short word will the Lord make upon the earth. Now, short word, cut it short. The word finish in the Greek literally means to complete entirely. To execute fully. So he's going to finish the work. He's not going to skip some stuff because things are so bad he's got to hurry this along or there's not going to be anybody left. No, he's going to do everything he promised to do it and he's going to do it in a hurry. And he says he's going to cut it short. And the word means to contract by cutting or to do concisely or speedily. So he's not going to eliminate anything. Eliminate anything. He's just going to cut out the, the, the uh, dead periods in the process. So that it happens quickly. Why? He's going to cut it short in righteousness. Before the people that are involved can become unrighteous by taking his glory for all that's going to be done. Because, and the Greek word for because means uh, that, uh, so that, or since, because a short work, and guess what? That's the same word of cut it short. It's to contract by cutting to do concisely or speedily. He's going to do a speedy word on the earth. And the great, great, great majority of us will be breathing when this happens. It's going to happen. I've lived all my life to be a part of this. I'll be 70 month one in two months. And I will live to see this. Believe what you want to believe. I will live to be a part of this. You believe what you want to believe. I'm not prophesying the day the Lord's coming. But I know that I, for this cause was I born. For this cause I was brought into the world to be a part of that. So are you if you want it. This was what I was... Well, this is what I was created to do and be. To be a part of this. To be a part of this. Huh. I read today or yesterday that there's a uh, bill that's going to be brought back up into Congress. Reinforcing the First Amendment, making it clear that that a person cannot be forced to violate their sincerely held religious conviction and accommodating people whose lifestyle is different than theirs. It didn't pass a couple of years ago, but it's being brought back up in the first hundred days. What does that tell you? 
We're going to have a little time, but it's not going to be enough time to sit back and put it on cruise control. We're going to have to look and see and be prepared and give ourselves to be a part of this while there's going to be an opportunity to preach and teach. So, the Lord's coming back for a bride the first time. It's not a rescue mission. It's a groom coming for his bride. And he's taking her to heaven with him. And in the process of taking his bride with him, he's taking his spirit, the, the, the means or the, 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 the manifestation of himself in which he has infilled the hearts and lives of men. That manifestation will cease on the earth. God fills all space. He can't go anywhere. So therefore, he's going to take his resistance to all of this and those he lives inside of who he told to resist the devil. He told us the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. He's taken us out of the way. And we're going to be in heaven. From Revelation chapter 4 verse 1. I believe that with everything in me. See, here's the problem. <laughs> in Revelation 4 and 5, there are, there's a group of people called the 24 elders. The word elder there is presbyterios. And it was never used in regards to humans ever anywhere in the Bible. These are not angels. These are humans. And where do we find these 24 humans or this number 24 that's representative of this group we find them in heaven sitting sitting in the presence of jesus on thrones around his throne with crowns on their heads now it is a very simple study to see what god promised the church he promised the church that they would sit in his presence, rule and reign with him, that they would be given crowns, and the Greek word there is Stephanos, which is victor's crown, not diademia, a crown of royalty. Because only Christ has a crown of royalty, he's the king. But we're going to be given victor's crowns. We're going to be sitting in his presence. We're going to be ruling and reigning with him. And who are we? The last part of chapter 5 says this. We're going to sing a song. To the Lamb that you, you're worthy because you've redeemed us. Hast, past tense, hast redeemed us. It's an accomplished fact. You have redeemed us out of every kindred, tongue, people, and nation. And hast made us, past tense, an accomplished fact. To be kings and priests and we shall, future tense, shall rule and reign with you on the earth. These promises were only made to one group of people. To sit in his presence on thrones, to wear victor's crowns, and to be kings and priests. Those promises were only made to the church. And if that's not the church, who is it? And show me where the church is, because there's no other group of people in all of the Bible who are ever depicted as sitting in his presence with crowns on their heads, 
and who are kings and priests ruling and reigning with him. And that group of 24, we know the numbers figurative because he said, he said, they said, you've redeemed us out of every kindred, tongue, people, and nation. And we know that there are more than 24 of every one of those categories. So it's a figurative number. And I won't get into what I think that may be because it's really not even an issue tonight. But here's the issue. That, 20, that group of elders, whoever those people are, are already in heaven when the Lamb takes the book and opens the first seal in Revelation 6 and 1. They're not on the earth. They're in heaven. And I've had people say, well, those first three and a half years are not the wrath of God. Really? Really, tell that to the people that, that experienced the sixth seal in chapter 6. Where they hid in rocks and caves and said, Hide us from the face of the Lamb, for the great day of His wrath has come. Tell, tell that to the one-fourth of all the people that's on the earth after the rapture. That's in that first chapter that's going to die. One out of every four. Read it. It says it. One out of every four. Humans on the earth are going to die in the first chapter of all of this. Chapter 6. And then we go to chapter 7. And we see this group... A group that no man can number. The Bible says they're saved or redeemed out of great tribulation. Chapter 9, verse 9, chapter 7. After this I beheld and lo a great multitude which no man could number of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood they did what? Oh, they weren't sitting then, were they? They were standing. Where? Not around the throne, but before the throne. And before the Lamb. Clothed in white robes. And they didn't have crowns. What did they have? Palms. And if you go back from this point toward the front of the Bible... You know the next place you'll find a group of people with palms in their hands? All of those that gathered the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey saying, the king of the Jews. Hail the king of the Jews. And they cr and cried with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God which sitteth upon the throne and under the Lamb. And all the angels stood round about the throne about the elders and the four beasts. And fell before the throne on their faces and worshipped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power. And might be under our God forever and ever. Amen. Listen now, verse 13. And one of the elders answered saying unto me, John the Apostle. 
One of the elders said to John the apostle, What are these which are arrayed in white robes, and whence came they? And John the apostle said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. I don't know who they are. You do. I don't. The apostle, one of the twelve apostles of the Lamb, did not recognize these people. He did not know who they were. And he said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation, and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are, where? Before the throne of God. And what do they do? Serve Him. That's not ruling and reigning with Him. And serve Him day and night, and He that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. So, the church has promised to sit with Him in His throne. These folks are standing. The church has promised crowns. These folks had palms. The church has promised to rule and reign with Him. These folks are serving Him. Oh, and one more point. Verse 16. Now I'm going to read 15 one more time. Therefore, therefore are they before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. And they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them. And the Greek word here is in the future tense. And shall lead them unto living fountains of waters. Now the Greek word here translated fountain is the same word that's used translated well in John chapter 4 verse 14. Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall thirst again. Whoever drinks of the water, uh, th this water, or the water that I shall give him shall never thirst again. Because, again, because it shall be in him a well of water springing up unto everlasting life. The word translated well that was speaking of the baptism of the Holy Ghost, which was going to be a well indwelling in us that was springing up unto everlasting life, is the same Greek word translated fountain here. So these people went to heaven without the Holy Ghost. They didn't get to drink of the fountains of living water till they got to heaven. So here your problem is, apostolic. Your problem, apostolic, is this. If you believe the church is on earth during that seven-year period, then you believe there's two plans of salvation on earth at the same time. You believe there are two plans of salvation on the earth. It, take your choice, whichever one you want. Because these people were saved out of great tribulation and didn't have the Holy Ghost while they were on the earth. So, time-wise, the most horrible time in the history of man happens. And the principle is this. God, in his mercy, because he is just and right and good, always offers grace before judgment in proportion to the judgment that's to follow. So, if that seven-year period is the worst time in the history of man, whatever precedes it is going to have to be the greatest 
the greatest work of God in the history of man among men. If that's not the case, then God has ceased to be just and righteous and good. And here's the key. You've been chosen by God to be born and live in that time. But to whom much is given, much will be required. 2,000 years ago on the day of Pentecost, they said, what meaneth this? Oh, these people are just drunk. No, these aren't drunk, Peter said. This is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. And he proceeded to not quote Joel. Because the book of Joel says, Joel 2.28, And it shall come to pass afterward, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. Joel prophesied Pentecost. But after the outpouring of the Holy Ghost on Pentecost, when Peter was quoting Joel, the Holy Ghost changed the words. It shall come to pass in the last days, saith God. I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. And hear me right now. There is no linguistic scholar of Hebrew and Greek that has ever attempted to make the words in Joel 2.28 afterward to be even remotely close to the Greek words translated in the last days. So Peter was saying, what, what Joel prophesied that's just happened this morning, it's what God is going to do in the last days. And so, the Antichrist who will be established and set up his one world economic system, his one world government, and if you don't take the mark of the beast, you can't buy or sell, you're going to be a troublemaker, they're going to kill you. They're going to behead you. That's the plan of salvation in that seven-year period. And we know that from the verse we read earlier today, uh, tonight, and that's Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4. There was two groups, those that were sitting on the thrones and those that were beheaded. And if you think you're smart enough to find a way around that, not going to happen. Because when you take the mark of the beast, you just doomed your eternity forever. Because no one who takes the mark of the beast will be saved. No way, no how. You will have declared your side. You don't have to worry about that. You're not going to be here. You're already either going to be at the marriage supper. Or you're already going to be burning in a lake of fire. You don't have to worry about the mark of the beast. So don't sweat, don't sweat the mark of the beast and all that stuff. Don't sweat it. I've made the statement, if they're going to offer me a chip so I don't have to carry around a wallet, bring it on. That's the mark of the beast. You can't have a, beast, a mark of the beast without a beast. Now, if they tell me, if you don't take this chip, you can't participate. Okay, all right. Enjoy yourself. Is the church going to suffer before the rapture? Yes. Revival has always brought persecution. Persecution includes death. People are going to die because of what God's doing in the earth. 
Nobody's preaching that the church is going to get out of here unscathed. But we're not going to be apart. The Bible says the Lord has not appointed us to wrath. And the idea that the wrath of God is only the last three and a half years of the seven. Again, give me a break. Somebody needs to read chapter six again. So. What's going to happen is. The Antichrist is going to try to finish off Hitler's work and eliminate Jews once and for all. And there's going to be a 200 million man army that's going to come against Israel and going to camp in the valley of Megiddo. And the second coming, according to the last part of Revelation 19, is going to be Christ coming back with his army. And that's not angel army. We're going to come back from heaven and wipe out those people in the valley of Megiddo. The Bible says that valley is approximately 200 miles long and 10 miles wide. And the blood in that valley, there's going to be so much blood flow, it's going to come up in depth to the horse's bridle. That, my friend, is the battle of Armageddon. And the second coming of the church with Christ to the earth will be a rescue mission for the Jewish nation. That will also be the beginning of the millennial kingdom. At that second coming, the Lord will set up his kingdom on the earth and he will fulfill the prophecy that he as the son of David in the flesh will sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem and rule the world for a thousand years. And since I've laid all this foundation tonight, might as well finish it off next week and talk about the millennial kingdom, which I didn't get to tonight. The bottom line is this. The Lord's got so many of us blinded to hit what good things he has for us. I has not seen, neither is ear heard, neither is entered into the heart of man, the things that God has prepared for those that love him. We're not here practicing a religion to save our hide. We're not here just fulfilling some kind of religious obligation. We're here apart as a part of God's master plan. God's master plan. That's what we're doing here. We're a part of the master plan of God. The universe is very young. The universe is very young. The universe is not old. Not in God. It's very young. And this is still the very beginning of God's plan for eternity. If the Lord spent this much time and effort designing a temporal world he was going to destroy, 
Designing bodies, human bodies that are the most complex system of systems anywhere in existence in the universe. Man in all of his brilliance hasn't even remotely come close to creating something as sophisticated as the human body. David said, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. If God, the Father, the creator of all of this, went to such lengths to create in such unimaginable sophistication that which is temporary, which is going to be destroyed. Tell me, please, what he's put into creating eternity. Tell me, please. People say, well, you know, time is about to be no more. Really, really. So, there's going to be a point where we all are stuck in one spot. We can't move. Because you see, this is a function of time. This is a function of time. The only way there can be no more time is I can't move. If I'm going to live forever, there's got to be time. Because without time, I can't move. I'm stuck in one spot. I'm a statue. Forever. Just go ahead and eliminate me. Don't stick me like that. No, 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 no. When the book says time will be no more, it's not talking about the clock or time as we, what we call time. It's talking about opportunity. To be saved will be no more. Because hear me, please. Oh, please hear me. <laughs> Angels are not exempt from time. The entire universe is a function of time. And space. There will never be a time where there's not time. Because if there's ever a time where there's not time, then there will be a time when there won't be us. There won't be anything else but God. We'd have to go all the way back to where there's God and nothing else to get to a place where there's no time. So because the Lord knows we can't understand it, he calls it forever. Because eternity has a beginning, it doesn't have an ending. I'm, my soul's eternal, it had a beginning. It doesn't have an ending. Angels are eternal, they had a beginning. They don't have an ending. That's why God is not eternal. <laughs> Because God didn't have a beginning or an ending. That's why he had to become Logos. And the Logos is the part of God that can relate to time and space. Because the I am God cannot directly relate to time and space. 
That's why the word infinite doesn't describe the eternal God. The, the I am God. Because the definition of infinite is every place and every time present at the same time. And when you define God by time and space, even if it means he's at every time simultaneously and every place simultaneously, you still define him by time and space. So you can't be talking about the I am God. Because all of it is in him. So who are you talking about? The Logos. The expression of the I am God into time and space. The one who brought about time and space. The one who became flesh at some point, sometime in Mary's womb. The Logos was made flesh and dwelt among us. Folks, our focus here is not church. It's not church services. It's not uh, survival. If your whole focus is just trying to stay saved another day. I hope something happens to change your perspective. Because it's like trying to lose weight another day. I don't care how long, how successful you are with that. There will be a day that Thanksgiving comes along and you'll blow it. (laughs) Or in this case, Christmas dinner. And so what do we do? Well, this is a free day. This is the day I can give all of my... I give myself over to everything I want to eat. And I'm going to start again on Monday. How does that work for you? For me, Monday doesn't usually come. I stay with Sunday after I've experienced Sunday again. <laughs> well, I know this is one of your experience. Well, you weren't expecting this tonight. You weren't expecting last Sunday night. I wasn't either. And I wasn't expecting this tonight. But next Thursday night, we will, uh, we'll, <laughs> for those that are here, we will talk about, the Lord willing, we will talk about the uh, millennial kingdom. That's a very important thing because you're going to be very involved in that. Praise God. Father, we thank you. We ask that you would go with us, that we would go with you, that your spirit, your love, your grace, your mercy, your peace would be upon us, that we might receive from you, that we might give back to you, And please you in Jesus' name, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. God bless you. Have a great Christmas. Please, please, listen to the Holy Ghost. Make sure if you think, well, I wonder if so-and-so's got some place to go. Don't say, oh, I'm sure they do. That's the Lord talking to you. Call them. Say, hey, you want to come to dinner?